This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 193. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you informed on my writing endeavors. So let's get right to it. Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 51 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. After Will was rescued from a Brotherhood holding cell, Callie, Will, Lizzie, and Michael went to Bayman Tower to speak with District Attorney Wendell Schubert. They told the DA how the Brotherhood had kidnapped both Will and police psychologist Jared Tamlin, and that the cult is currently performing some kind of dark ritual to open a channel to their imprisoned god. The Brotherhood has many members in the highest levels of Metamore society, including the police force, so they need Schubert's help to assemble a team of cops they can trust to take down the cult. Schubert made some calls to put his posse together, but someone betrayed his trust and informed the cult. Now, members of the Special Investigations Division have formed a dragnet around Bayman Tower. If Will and Schubert allow themselves to be taken into custody, the Brotherhood will make sure they are silenced. Callie led Lizzie, Will, and Schubert out of the residential zone and through the maintenance sector of the tower to an entertainment district on the opposite side of the building. Their goal was to cross the sky bridge to Grappen Tower, slipping out of the dragnet before SID knew they were gone. Unfortunately, Callie's famous luck wasn't enough to help them this time. The police noticed the sky bridge, and a team of officers closed it off before Callie and her team got there. And to make things worse, Will suffered a bad reaction to the vampire blood that Morgan used to revive him. In the entertainment district, surrounded by lights and noise and crowds of people, the overstimulated Will had a kind of anxiety attack. You have to cut him loose, a voice in Callie's mind tells her. It's the only way you can save him. Meanwhile, Michael stayed behind at Schubert's apartment. He has a plan that he hopes will buy more time for Callie and the others to get away. With the help of Evan, Brian, and Nathan back at Kenning Security, Michael set up a live video feed from the security cameras in Schubert's apartment. With the world net watching, Michael set out his gun, badge, and identification at one end of a long coffee table, then handcuffed himself to the opposite end. When SID's SWAT officers arrived, Michael looked up and addressed the cameras. My name is Corporal Michael Pirelli. I have aided and abetted the actions of a group of criminals. I am here to surrender. The Lost and the Least 
a novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 51 Callie turned her back to the police officers, steering Will in a half-circle until he did likewise. Even if the Blues weren't looking for Will specifically, and there was no reason to suspect they knew who he was, at the moment he looked like a burned-out drug addict having a bad trip. That was the sort of thing that drew the attention of observant cops especially in the middle of a fancy entertainment spot. Lizzie drifted up next to her, looking about as casual as a police detective could. Any thoughts? she asked. She was looking at Schubert, but her ears were pointed in Callie's direction. Callie pitched her voice low, counting on the leopard woman's feline hearing to pick it up over the background noise. You two are way too easy to spot. You should find a quiet spot to change and go full human. Lizzie's lip curled, just slightly. No, my balance is better in this form. I'm also faster and stronger, and I have claws. And if I go human now, I'll have to pay off the shifting stress before I can return to normal. I don't want to risk not having hands when I need them. Callie looked over at Schubert. The big otter man flexed his claws on one hand. Callie sighed. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't want to give up my special talents either. Hey, wait a sec. Okay, new plan, Callie said. Follow me and try to keep up. She gave Will a little shake. You hear me, tiger? Eyes front, let's move. She quickened her pace tugging hard on Will as she headed away from the crowds and back into the tower. Lizzie and Schubert followed, a few paces distant, letting the civilians flow around and between them to disguise their movements. As they re-entered the shopping district and the crowd disappeared, Will seemed to become more aware of his surroundings again. He started panting, like he'd just sprinted five blocks. Callie kept them moving at a brisk pace until they were back in the blank, featureless hallways of the maintenance sector. Here, at last, she slowed to a walk and allowed Will to catch his breath. Lizzie and Schubert had fallen a little behind, but Callie was sure they'd catch up shortly. That was... that was crazy, Will said, sounding confused, frightened, and maybe a little angry with himself. That's never happened to me before. Kelly, what if that drug she gave me is making me sick? Worry about it later, Kelly said shortly. She was trying to focus on navigating the inside of a tower she barely knew, while watching for police and security cameras and guards and gods knew what other bullshit the fates were going to throw at them. I don't have time to deal with your topsider hand-wringing, too. I'm worried about it now, Will insisted. Callie, what if I'm having an overdose? What if I need to go to a hospital? Callie spun on him, grabbed two fistfuls of the front of his shirt, and shook him. Stop! Stop your fucking whining! God fucking damn it, you're worse than my mother! Will's mouth fell open. He stared at her, and for once, thank all the gods, no sound came out of him. You wanted to help. I begged you to stay out of my world, but no, you stupid-ass topsiders think you can do anything. 
You think you're going to come down here and be some kind of fucking savior? And then you get a little hurt, and now it's, oh, gods, there's something wrong with me. I think I'm dying. She pitched her voice in a high, mocking whine. She knew she was being cruel, but she couldn't stop herself. All of her pent-up frustrations, at Will's cluelessness, his stupid misplaced optimism, his big-headed dreams of being an important writer, as if there were such a thing, all of it came rushing out of her, spraying poison in all directions like a ruptured mana battery. Grow with the fuck up, Will! The team is counting on you! You fall apart now, you put us all in trouble! She let go of his shirt and turned her back on him, clenching her fists. It took him a few seconds of stunned silence before he found his voice. Kelly, I'm sorry. You're right. I'm not cut out for this. Callie shook her head wearily. When she spoke again, her voice was quiet, tired. No. No, I'm sorry. I never should have pulled you into my world. You don't belong here. Sooner or later, you're going to get killed. And maybe get somebody else killed along with you. It's time for you to go... Back where you came from. Somewhere safe, she said instead. There wasn't much Will could say to that, and luckily he seemed to realize it. He kept staring at her for a long moment as tears welled up and then ran down his face. At last he closed his eyes and turned away from her, bowing his head. It's over, Callie thought. Whatever we had... Whatever we could have had, it's over now. She didn't have time to process how she felt about that. Not now. Lizzie and Schubert came into view now that the fireworks were over. They were still in the abandoned depths of the maintenance sector, so Callie wasn't too worried that someone had overheard her outburst. But you did just waste precious time, she thought. Super fucking professional, Callie. The leopard woman cast an anxious glance between Callie and Will. You said there was a new plan, she prompted. Yeah. Callie wiped angrily at her eyes, then turned her attention to the policewoman. Four of us together is too big a footprint. We're going to get noticed. We need to split up. Lizzie nodded, but she still looked hesitant. I could take Uncle Chooch and try to get back to the skimmer. No. Callie said, cutting her off. Schubert's got to be at the rendezvous, or we don't get our backup. That means we've got to move him fast. She looked up at the DA. You come with me, big guy. We'll head downside, get to my swoop, and get out of here. Schubert shot a worried look at Lizzie, but then set his jaw and nodded once. All right. Callie turned back to Lizzie. You two, go topside. Will needs to hole up someplace where he'll be safe until he can recover, and then go do his thing in court. I can't give him that. I figure you can. Lizzie's ears pricked up in surprise, and her tail stood out straight behind her. You trust me to do that? After what happened last time? Callie tried to shrug casually while keeping her eyes fixed on Lizzie. She couldn't look at Will while she was talking about him or she might not be able to speak. 
past is past, she said quietly. You're a pro. You'll get it done. Just don't tell anyone where you're going, all right? Especially not us. Lizzie looked at Schubert, and Callie saw her gaming out the situation in her head. It didn't take her very long. And you're not telling us where you're going for the same reason. Right, Callie said. She offered her forearms to Lizzie, palms up. I was wrong about you before. Don't think I'm wrong now. Lizzie smiled, then placed her own forearms atop Callie's. They gripped each other's arms just below the elbow. It was an ancient sign of trust and friendship, one that cut across all lines of class and breeding. Good luck, Miss Linda, Lizzie said. Callie felt her lip quirk up at one corner. That's the idea. They parted. Callie gestured to Schubert, and they started heading down one of the narrow passages that would take them back to the inner support column. Will called after her, a note of desperation in his voice. Callie? Callie stopped. She shoved her reflexive anger back down, then looked back over her shoulder. What is it, Will? We're burning time here. Will looked back and forth between her and Lizzie. You're just... just walking away? Like that? No goodbye? Callie gave Schubert a wait-here gesture, then went back to Will. She gave him a hug, but she didn't look at his face while she did it. When he tried to kiss her, she turned her head so that his lips touched her cheek. Callie? You need to go, she said quietly. She started to break away from him, but he held on to her more tightly. Callie, are you... are you breaking up with me? So, he figured it out. We'll talk about it later. Let me go. Oh, Eli, you are, Will said, his voice growing higher with panic. Please, Callie, you don't have to do this. I'm sorry. I'll never stick my nose in your business again. I... Will. Callie's voice came out like the crack of a whip. She looked him full in the eyes now, letting him see the cold fury inside her. You are hurting me. Let go. Will looked down at his own hands, seeming to notice them for the first time. They were clutching Callie's arms so tightly she was sure she would have bruises tomorrow. Vampire strength, she thought. Will's mouth fell open in horror, and he released his grip on her. He fell back one shaky step, then another. I'm sorry, he whispered. Callie let out a heavy breath, felt her shoulders slump with fatigue. She took a long look at Will. As sick as she was of his whining, she did hurt for him. Breakups were hard enough without doing them when you were strung out on vampire blood. She took a half-step closer to him and lowered her voice, enough to give them a measure of privacy. Look, I know there's a lot to say, all right? I get it. You got a right to speak your piece. But there's no time. We spent too much time already. I've got to help Kate and save Silas. And all that stuff you're feeling, all the shit you want to say to me, it's important, but it doesn't change anything. 
She shrugged sadly, then reached out one tentative hand and squeezed his bicep. I hope you find the girl you were looking for. But I'm not her. Never will be. The gentle words seemed to hit him even harder than when she yelled at him. He doubled over like he'd taken a physical hit to the gut. Did, did you ever love me? A knife twisted in Callie's own stomach, and her vision went blurry. She wiped her eyes on her sleeve, then gently reached out and cupped his face in one hand, turning his eyes to look at her. I do love you, Will. That's why I have to go. She smiled through her tears, leaned in, and kissed him lightly on the cheek. Take care of yourself, Tiger. Then she turned away, and with a determination born from years of hardened practice, she walked out of Will Karenson's life. Michael's surrender had caused enough confusion in the ranks that the SID SWAT team stood guard over him for more than five minutes, waiting for a superior to tell them what to do. Other officers ran by outside, searching the rest of the floor, presumably for Schubert and Callie and the others. They shouted to one another, pounded on doors, and quickly woke up a good number of the building's residents. Michael prayed that Schubert's wife was a heavy sleeper, at least the cops here in the living room weren't yelling anymore. Eventually, a tall, dark-haired woman with SWAT armor and a lieutenant's bars came into the room. She took in the situation with one sweep of her eyes. Michael saw her nameplate above her breast pocket. Jaguar. So, this was the lieutenant who had worked with Kate and Lizzie to capture Nevenard Lido. Did that make her an ally? or was she a knowing participant in the Brotherhood conspiracy? Michael didn't know. We'll probably find out in the next few minutes, though. Lieutenant Jaguar gestured to one of her subordinates. Collins, stay with me, she said. Then, to the others, the rest of you, join the search. Yes, Lieutenant, they said, and left. Jaguar closed the door behind them just as one of the neighbors started loudly protesting about the violation of his rights as an imperial citizen. Then she returned to Michael, crouching down in front of him to study his face. She had a strong chin and dark, intelligent eyes. A faint frown creased her forehead as she examined him. State your name, rank, and badge number, she said. Michael Gustavo Pirelli, Corporal. Michael responded immediately. Badge number 01-Alpha, 7-Mike-Romeo, 0-Niner. Jaguar looked up at the other officer, Collins, and jutted her chin at Michael's badge and identification. It checks out, Collins said. Jaguar nodded her thanks. She pulled out her handcuff keys and removed Michael's cuffs. Have a seat, she said. Michael sat, rubbing absently at his wrists. Jaguar perched in a chair opposite him, still watching him with those intensely sharp eyes. Where's D.A. Schubert? Jaguar asked. I don't know, Michael said. He was here, but he left with the others. I don't know where they are now. The others? Jaguar pressed. A group of street-side criminals, 
They wanted help getting in to talk to Schubert, away from Justice Tower. Jaguar's eyes narrowed. Why? Michael shrugged. They had information. They wanted to negotiate with the DA. The woman grunted. Did you have authorization from your captain on this? No, ma'am. Then why the hell did you do it? Jaguar didn't sound angry, just baffled. You do understand the security risks involved, don't you? Yes, ma'am, but the risks were a little different from usual in this case. Jaguar sat back, a cool skepticism settling over her face. You're going to have to unpack that one for me, Corporal. Michael glanced up at Collins, standing with her combat rifle at the ready over by the door. He deliberately put on a worried, nervous expression, and it didn't take much acting. Before I say anything, I want you both to take note of the security cameras. My companions have cracked the building's computer system. There's a live feed going out to the WorldNet right now. Reporters from six major news outlets have already been notified. They're watching the feed, listening to everything we say. Jaguar's eyebrows went up. That seems a bit hard to believe for a secret meeting in the dead of night. It'll make sense in a second, Michael said. I just wanted you both to know, you're being watched and recorded from several different angles. Noted, Jaguar said dryly. Corporal Pirelli, what's this all about? There is a conspiracy inside the Metamore City Police Department, Michael said, speaking loudly and clearly for the benefit of the microphones. This conspiracy has also penetrated the criminal underworld, the noble class, and the highest levels of government. My companions uncovered irrefutable evidence of this conspiracy, including the suppression of evidence in a string of murders committed 27 years ago. The conspirators have killed good police in order to cover their tracks. Now they've kidnapped one of our staff psychologists, Dr. Jared Tamlin of Precinct 9. We believe they intend to kill him sometime tonight. Jaguar's eyes widened, just slightly, but she kept the rest of her face composed. That is... a remarkable set of claims, Corporal. I know, Michael said, and I wouldn't be bringing them forward yet if it weren't an emergency. But the conspirators are about to fulfill their plan. We need to stop them. Tonight. Collins shifted slightly by the door. Michael caught the motion out of the corner of his eye. Jaguar leaned in closer. And what is their plan? Jaguar asked. Michael looked straight into her eyes, watching her expression carefully as he spoke. This is an apocalypse, cult lieutenant. They've been murdering street people to gather mana for a big ritual, and now they're using it. If we don't stop them, they're going to call some kind of ancient imprisoned god back into our reality. They want to remake the world in their god's image. Jaguar was silent for several seconds. Michael watched the emotions pass across her face. First, confusion. Then, realization. Then, finally, a carefully guarded fear mixed with pity. Michael's heart sank. That's an expression you only show when you're dealing with a crazy person. Jaguar got to her feet. I need to make a call, 
she said, watching Michael closely as she rose. You stay here, please. She gestured to Collins to stay where she was, and the younger woman nodded sharply. I'm telling you the truth, Michael said calmly. Jaguer looked briefly over her shoulder. I believe you, she lied, and walked out. Ten minutes later she returned and cuffed Michael's hands in front of him, while Collins kept a watchful eye and her rifle at the ready. Michael offered no resistance. They took him down the stairs to the lobby at Skyway level, where a swarm of uniformed officers were trying to hold back a gaggle of aggressive reporters. Microphones and television cameras jockeyed for position as Michael came into view. Good job, Evan, Michael thought, hiding a smile. The reporters shouted their questions at Michael, at Lieutenant Jaguer, at anyone who looked like they might be an authority figure. What is Corporal Pirelli being charged with? Is it true the district attorney has been kidnapped? Lieutenant, building residents are saying you searched their apartments without a warrant. Is this true? Have you sealed all the exits? Why can't they use the building's security system to find Mr. Schubert? Corporal Pirelli, did you give yourself up because you felt remorse about aiding these criminals? Jaguer steered Michael away from the press and into the security office behind the front desk. Michael was still so distracted from the noise and chaos that he didn't notice who else was in the office until he was already inside. The looming forms of Sergeant Hawkins and Detective Bentley slowly rose from two of the room's three chairs. Hawkins, the beaver morph, was smiling his usual crocodile grin, maybe a little wider and sharper than usual. Bentley, the rhino, was chewing on a wad of nicotine gum, his small eyes cold as they glared at Michael. Mr. Pirelli, Hawkins said, how wonderful that you could join us. His false cheer had so many sharp edges, Michael was half surprised the man didn't start spitting blood. Bentley snorted. You've been busy, partner. He gestured to the empty chair between them. The Sarge and I can't wait to hear all about it. And that's the end of Chapter 51. Come back next time, when John and Morgan carry out their diversion against the Brotherhood. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,939 words this week, over the course of five hours, for an average writing speed of 788 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 273 days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on my portal fantasy, The Dark Lord Steve. The manuscript is up to about 12,000 words, and I think I'm closing in on the end of it. I'm currently debating what to throw at my protagonist for a final challenge, and how he's going to get out of it. This has been a light, fun story to write, and I'm glad I took a chance on it. Looking back at the month of June, I wrote a total of 13,745 words in 19 days, 
averaging 723 words per day. That puts June 2019 in 30th place out of the 50 months I've been tracking my writing. I spent 17.75 hours writing last month. Compared to May, my word count increased by 9%, and my writing time decreased by 22%. I did not meet my goal of writing on 24 days of each month, but since I used the extra time to work on new editions for four of my books, I still feel like I was reasonably productive. Over on the Patreon campaign, we have a new patron this month. Please welcome Mark. Also this week, Carol Foote has released her latest piece of bonus art. This is her first illustration for A Wizard Family Solstice, and it shows John Tunstall and Artax at the register of the Spells for You magic shop. This is definitely one you won't want to miss. It has a bunch of cool and funny little details and Easter eggs. Carol did a great job of bringing Spells for You to life in all its tacky commercial glory. You can see a sample at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, but if you want to view the whole thing, you'll need to become a patron. Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. Roughly 91% of everything you donate goes directly to me, so it's the single best way to support my work and help me keep doing this. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.